Hello everyone, before we get started, I wanted to talk a little bit about vitamin D. In the US alone, 42% of adults are deficient. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin that's been known to help the body absorb and retain calcium and phosphorus, both which are critical for building bone. Also, laboratory studies show that vitamin D can reduce cancer cell growth, help control infections, and reduce inflammation. It may even play a greater role in getting sick more than vitamin C, like we've all been told before. Typical multivitamin supplements give you a very low dose of vitamin D, and you should probably get a separate supplement that's just vitamin D and shoot for about 5,000 IU per day. Also remember, I'm not a doctor and I'm not giving you medical advice, just bringing up something that you might want to take into consideration. You can get your vitamin D also from egg yolks and fatty fish. If you are going to take a vitamin D supplement, you should look to take it with K2, which works with the vitamin D to transport the calcium from the bloodstream into your bones to support bone density and heart health. And with that, let's get started. Hello everyone, my guest today is William Nutter. He's a cargo pilot for FedEx and currently flies routes all over the world to include Paris, Japan, China, Australia, and Singapore, and others. He's also a licensed real estate agent in the state of Washington and is currently still playing shows with his band. I have known Will for many years, so this should be interesting. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you. And uh, can you can you please tell the listeners how we know each other? Yes, we um, we have the same mom and dad, so we are brothers. That is that is how. Okay, thank you. Uh, we are brothers, except you got to be born in Monterey, nineteen eighty-five, Monterey, California, and I got to be born in the middle of nowhere. I actually don't know where you were born. I was born in Lemoore. Wow, I didn't know that. All right. Learn something today. Uh, the first thing is, please tell me about this microphone that you have uh, sent to me for my birthday. Thank you very much. Dude, how are you born in Lemoore and I was born in Monterey after you, but then we ended up living in Lemoore? That part, I don't remember. The only thing I remember about Monterey is the aquarium and somebody had a plum tree uh, that I could eat. Um, plums from until I got sick. I remember on a third grade field trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, I was walking down the sidewalk with my class and the girl in front of me, her name was Kathleen, got pooped on by a seagull right in front of me. And that was my memory of that field trip. Yeah. Um, I don't remember much about Monterey. There's a carousel theater that uh, my uh, our mom's friend would take me to. Yes. I think to give her a break. Yeah. Yes. But then other than that, I don't really remember. I don't remember moving there or even moving back. Yeah, I don't. Um, I only really remember Lemoore. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So Lemoore for um, 15 years, 16 years, 12 years. I don't know. Yeah. Like 86 to 97. Yeah. Seven years for me. So yeah, 15 for you. 15 for me with a small break for from Monterey that I don't right. remember. Awesome. Okay, so tell me about this microphone that you sent. Yeah, so I sent you a modified version of a very common Shure microphone that's used in recording studios. Um, it was used on Amber Pacific's second full-length record, Truth and Sincerity. Um, so that's the SM7B dynamic microphone. That is what we use in the studio. The one that I sent you was a Shure MV7 USB microphone, I believe. Is that correct? Slightly correct. It's actually an XLR. I thought it was XLR. I didn't think it was a USB. I'm looking on Amazon right now. Which one is better, XLR or USB? XLRs probably can give you a better signal, probably less latency, and better quality overall. And how's the quality? I think the quality sounds pretty good, pretty professional. Um, what kind of microphone are you using? Is it better than mine? No, my microphone that I'm talking through right now is a Shure SM58, which is very common uh, in music venues all around the world. 
Is that the one that looks like a regular microphone? Yeah, I mean, like even like the biggest pop stars use this microphone because it's very durable. You can like beat it and throw it to the ground and no one's, it's never going to break. You can get like water and sweat on it and it still works. Pretty amazing. And then with that one, you could also mic drop that one. You can mic drop it and the Shure SM57 Alpha, I think, is the one that I actually used on stage for the band. And that's, um, that requires a little bit more from the soundboard to get the microphone to work, but it's a little more like, I guess, just a little more roomier in the sound, which kind of like, yeah, the one that I sent is a Shure MV7X XLR podcast microphone. Sounds pretty good. It's pretty good because I'm going to use it for podcasts. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nice. I don't know if you know, but you sent me the microphone. I got a a cheap XLR cable. I didn't like it, so I got a good XLR cable. I got a M Audio interface, and I got a podcasting stand, a Rode PSA One Plus, and now I'm set. Yeah, those are all. That's a good setup. Oh, and and uh, my Joe Rogan headphones instead of this beat up old Bose set, and that made a huge difference. I think. You can use some really basic equipment and you can get some pretty amazing sound, but that's all because of the like post-production tools that are available, like different um, software programs and things that can clear up vocals or make them sound different. So you can take like a microphone that doesn't sound too good and you can make it sound pretty fancy. Well, there's a lot of um, AI tools now too. And uh, some guys wanted to talk about that uh, next week, but um you can really get, that's a whole different world when you get into like mastering, editing. That's also how I'm getting all of my interview answers for you today. Oh, really? AI? Yes. Yeah, I heard about that. We'll find about uh, find out about that next week. <laughs> so we went to um, schools in Washington and you played sports in high school? Played sports in high school and middle school track and football i was a superstar flag football athlete in sixth grade Mm -hmm. um introduced to full contact tackle football in seventh grade and it was entirely different than what i was used to we just didn't have it available to us back home so yeah it's not like now like these kids are getting into tackle football at like 10 years old yeah we didn't really have that we had flag football so i played flag football all the time and I thought I was really good and then I got up here and started getting hit by people much bigger than me and I didn't like it and um but I still played it pretty much seventh seventh through twelfth grade um had a really good year my junior year but then we had some really superstar players come in my senior year that just went above me and never really got my shot I remember one of your superstar players he was a he was like a third-year senior. Yeah, it's actually really interesting. We had like a couple of those guys. I think the dude that you're talking about was the same one that was at school when you were there before me. Four years earlier. And then um, he was still there when I was there, still <laughs> playing football somehow. And that guy was actually really cool, super cool, super nice guy. Ended up making it all the way through the collegiate football levels at some Division two schools. And then he ended up getting on the practice squad for the Packers, the Lions, the Raiders. But he never made it to the 53-man roster for the season. Yeah, so the message for aspiring athletes is to stay in high school as long as possible and try and get three seasons out of your senior year. Gets you a pretty good chance at making it to at least the next level. So he actually had a killer plan. That's crazy because I also played with a guy who made it all the way to the San Francisco Giants baseball team professionally and ended up hitting the game-winning home run in one of the uh, like national championship series to go to the World Series just a couple years ago. Yeah, there's some good athletes from, from that part. We have um, one of the guys that was wrestling uh, at a rival school when I went through, he, uh, Benson Henderson. He did well in the UFC. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's there's that. Um, we had a guy. Let's see here. 
So Travis Ishikawa was the baseball player. Sean Bodiford was the football player. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of another. And there was another person that was ended up making it pretty big in the sports world. I can't remember who it was, but yeah, a lot of good athletes around there. And those are all public schools, right? By the way, public schools. Yeah, Federal Way Public School. There is um. There's a guy a couple of years after me. His name's Jaden McDaniels. Went on to play for the Minnesota Timberwolves, like right now in the NBA. So, yeah, I bring up I bring up that um public school thing because for for me and you, public school is like a normal thing, right? Totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, over here, everybody wants to go to private school, but yeah, but for us, if you went to private school, you're kind of a weirdo. Yeah, you know, I actually just learned that private school is pretty expensive out here in Washington, at least. It's extremely expensive out here. Yeah, it's like going to college, but when you're like a kid. <laughs> yeah, you can learn. You can, you can learn how to uh, color and do your shapes for the price of like a year of college. Yeah, I know it's an interesting thing. The school campuses are nice, though. That's for sure. Oh yeah, the campuses are great, but um, you know, for us, like public school was was the normal thing everybody goes to public school and it's not terrible yeah but that's a whole nother topic that's a whole nother right. show right okay so you were um high school sports you went to actually in high school you made a band in high school i made a band that's right and uh how did that come about i um i used to watch my brother you play guitar all the time, like your junior and senior year of high school. I don't know when you started, but it was right around then. Right. And I used to be so annoyed by it, actually. Um, Thank you. Because you used to play the same songs over and over and over again. I guess you were practicing, though, so looking back now, that makes sense. No, I actually I actually only knew the same three songs, so that's what I was playing over and over again. And you would sing the same like three songs also, which was a little bit annoying at the time, but now it's funny. Right. And... And I just never got into it. I thought I was going to be a football player, like a professional football player. I was convinced, even even though when I knew I, you know, it wasn't really going to happen. I still thought it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I never turned to music very much. And then, um, I guess in uh, like tenth grade, maybe eleventh grade, so sophomore, junior year, of high school. I jumped in a car with a couple of friends. We went over to Eastern Washington at a beautiful music venue called The Gorge. And we watched a Blink-182 Newfound Glory Jimmy Eat World concert. And that was my very first concert that I'd ever gone to. Mm -hmm. I think that was in 2001. And um, that was awesome. I watched those bands play and I remember hearing like the sound of the drums and all the guitars and we were sitting up on the grass. So we weren't even like super up front for it, but I just thought it was so cool. And then I started getting into those bands and I had some friends at school that were showing me different bands in the genre, like, um, like MXPX and, uh, some old school punk bands like Mill and Colin and no effects and, so I started just diving into that world and then um, started picking up a guitar like my junior year and learned a bunch of Blink-182 songs, started dressing like them, started uh, getting the same like hats and guitars and things that Tom had from Blink-182. And then I learned a bunch of Green Day stuff after that. And that's kind of like what got it all kickstarted. Um, and then I just started writing my own stuff. Um off of a bad breakup in high school and that kind of carried started like growing a little fan base for us locally and that just kept on growing and growing until we got on further down the road on that story you think that it would have been easier or a lot different if they had all this streaming uh do your own live stuff i think it's actually way harder now because there's, I mean, back then there was so many local bands already. So it was already kind of a, I don't know if competitive is the right word, but it was kind of competitive to just to break out of that group of bands to kind of be one of like the more prominent names in town. And there was probably three or four of us that were in that world. Um, But then nowadays, I mean, you could do entire like records at home on your computer using garage band or logic and 
Uh, you can put yourself on Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and all that stuff. You can do it all at home on your own. You don't need a record label anymore to do any of that. And so actually, I think it's way harder now to break out because there's just too many bands out there, too many artists trying to get themselves heard. So the market the market is saturated. Super saturated. But you guys actually were on a record label. Yeah. Yeah, we were, I mean, it's a different time and we got, uh, we were fortunate enough just through networking and having the right people in our corner to get the opportunity to be heard by a label that liked us. And we were turned down by labels that didn't like us. So just um, just finding the right fit and then fortunate enough to be offered a contract to go tour the country and um, that all happened you know my first quarter in college so and so a lot of important decisions to make there yes one of your important decisions was um, taking a break from college to go on tour right yeah yeah that was so we got presented with that deal like while I was in my first fall quarter of the University of Washington in 2003 and um, that was a hard one because uh, leaving school is not really, you know, to like be leaving school to be in a band to go tour the country didn't really sound like a really promising future at the time. But somebody, somebody convinced your parents to let you do it. I guess that's where you come in, but I actually didn't know that you had, um, that you had talked to them about that. <laughs> I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> Did you say anything to them? What'd you say to them? I said that the opportunity is going to probably be gone in like two years and college will probably be around for the next 200 years mm, mm -hmm. so you know our parents are very very reasonable so they're mm -hmm. they let you do it yeah yeah we decided to do it um had to get everyone on board with the band too but that all happened like going into winter quarter i remember it was like january um when we sat down in um the little like library dining room of the fraternity that we were both in and our singer Matt was part of that fraternity also. And so we just brought all the guys up there and sat down and had a meeting and basically said, are we going to pursue it full time or not? And if we are, then let's go do it. And so that's when we decided to do it was in January. Wait, so you guys all dropped out? Yeah, it was really good timing um, because I was on academic probation. So <laughs> I don't know what would have happened if I stayed that winter quarter. I, maybe I would have ended my collegiate career pretty quickly there before it even got started if I stayed in school. So maybe it was a good thing that that came up when it did, that opportunity. But just to touch up on that, you did eventually finish school. Oh, yeah. had to. That was part of the deal. That was the arrangement was, mm -hmm. you know, take a break, go explore the, the band option and what, you know, take a look at it basically on a year-by-year -year basis. And as long as we were still gaining momentum and, the trajectory was looking good then we could keep doing it which is pretty much what ended up you know we ended up doing that for 2004 to 2012 like full-time so when did you go back to school i think i started taking some online classes in 2010 um so you had a pretty good break yeah and then um yeah that was like a seven eight year break and then Went back, did much better, was more focused and just older and more mature. So it was a lot easier to handle everything. And then, um, yeah, I got my, I guess I got my degree from UW in 2012, June of 2012. But uh, going on tour, that wasn't easy though, right? No, that was not easy. We had um, a lot of obstacles to overcome early on when you start out. I remember we were in my... In our singer's uh, grandma's 33-foot motorhome, we threw on like a 19-foot trailer behind it and we hit the road. And the venues that we were playing when we started out on our very first tour were, it was not good. It was like, did we make a giant mistake? Because we were playing in these random bars in like Palm Springs where there was like five people there to see us, but the rest of the people there didn't care and didn't know who we were. And um, we kept doing that all the way down the West Coast. And... We didn't really get an opportunity to play in front of a good real crowd until we got put on the Warp Tour in 2004. And that's really where our fan base grew. And like that's where we made our our foundation was on the Warp Tour. We worked our butts off on the so Warp Tour. So the Warp Tour is separate from that um, 
U.S. tour that you guys were supposed to be doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we did the tour to lead into the Warp Tour to kind of jump onto that when we were supposed to start, and um, that was great. I think the first show that we played for the Warp Tour was in Houston, and I remember pulling up to the stadium at the time. I think it was Reliant Stadium is what it was called at the time in Houston, and uh, we got there a day early. We went to a Target, and I remember walking through the Target, and I was in an aisle with my best friend Brad, and I looked down the way, and there was the drummer of Newfound Glory standing there. And this, <laughs> if you remember, my first show was Newfound Glory. So seeing Cyrus down the hall, like down the aisle from where I was, was like very, I was super starstruck. I, <laughs> I said said his name in a really bad way. I was like, Cyrus? You know, and he didn't even hear me or recognize or know that I was talking, but Brad was laughing at me because I was just so, you know, it was like, wow, we, we've we made it. Like, we've made it to this awesome tour where there's these real bands that we're playing with, and it's not like in a random bar in Palm Springs anymore. So it was a, kind of like a life-changing moment for us. That's cool. Um, what, other, what other bands did you get to see and hang out with over there on that four-year tour? Uh, one, one of our favorite memories was hanging out in uh i think it was in hershey pennsylvania and it was a really big big exciting day for us because we were scheduled to play right after fallout boy and fallout boy was not who they were today they were a band just like us like just kind of getting started playing small clubs but their following was starting to grow a little bit and so we knew that there'd be a big crowd there but we were in the parking lot on the side of the stage and we realized that they were a couple spots down in their van, 15 passenger van, just hanging out. So we went over and gave them our first EP um, that we recorded. Basically tried to just network with them and get to know them a little bit. And they were super nice to us. And then um, they went on and played and they mentioned everybody to stick around for us, which everyone did. And it was like one of the coolest, biggest crowds that we played in front of. This was like one of the first big crowds that we played in front of was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, right after Fallout Boy. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 So you guys were doing that from about 03. Now we're like, you know, that's like 20 years later now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But you guys still have good fans. Yeah, they're sticking around. We still have a lot of listeners on Spotify and a lot of followers on Facebook and starting to dive into the world of TikTok and all those other things just to keep the brand going and keep our name out there but it's um it's really good we're we're there's people that still want to hear more music so we're going to keep doing that until people don't want to listen anymore awesome you guys are still playing shows yeah we do a couple shows a year our next one's going to be um in 2024 in april out in buda texas which is just south of austin i believe like 10 minutes away from the austin airport mm-hmm and then we're um, working on a couple other shows around that date just to make our time worth it out there in Texas. And then hopefully jump on some things locally here in Seattle. And uh, we're also working on a possible run over in the United Kingdom, which would be our first big international tour that we've ever done. And maybe spend a week or two out there next year as well. Well, that's cool. A lot of a lot of band stuff still going on. Are they still yeah. playing the uh, the Monday Night Football break commercial breaks yeah i haven't um last season i didn't catch it as much maybe once but the one before that whoever's working at espn or nbc is a fan of amber pacific they keep playing amber pacific going into commercial break on monday night football sunday night football thursday night football so it's just always a it's always a surprise and b it's like just super cool and fun to still see our music popping up in places like that Oh, that's cool. Um, you also had songs in a video game. Yeah, we were featured in Burnout 3 Takedown, which was a big, um, super fun series of games back in the early 2000s. And that was um, that was a big for us. We got a lot of fans off of that song being featured. And then we also were played in um, a couple movie trailers for some big motion pictures and also featured in the actual Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film in 2008. Didn't they, didn't they let you guys come down for that too? Yeah, it was the um, 
it was the green carpet, not the red carpet, but it was the green. Oh, what's the, it was the what's green the difference? Carpet. It was just turtle themed instead of being like an actual red carpet. It was a green carpet because it was the turtles and they're green. That's why. <laughs> but um, we got to go to the, I think it's like the Kodiak or the Kodak theater down there in LA and um, got to see the movie on like the big screen and had seats reserved for us. And there was like these little gift bags that came with it and got to do the whole deal. It was pretty cool. Kind of surreal. Oh, so good stuff from the band. That was a, that was um, turned out to be a good opportunity then. Yeah. Huge. Awesome. So do you have any advice if somebody wanted to get into playing, they enjoy music, they want to get into putting it out there, what's the best way to get into there? I think you have to stick with um, writing stuff that you're happy with and stuff for you. You know, you kind of write it for yourself. You don't really think about who else it's going to reach or hit. And um, at least when you're starting out, that's really the whole point of it. And then if it's good and people like it, then uh, it kind of takes on its own thing and then maybe you start thinking about different things to write about as your career gets bigger. But I think you have to do it for the right reasons. That's the whole like foundation of getting started. If you want to do it yourself is just making sure that you're doing it for you and not to try to be like a, you know, like a superstar celebrity from it. Cause that's the wrong reason to do it. That's pretty good advice. So moving on, um, what if somebody wants to buy a house in Washington? Can they call you? They can absolutely call me to buy a house, or if they already own one, they can call me to sell it. I just sold a house recently, and so the market is still really strong here, but uh, on the buyer side, it's much, much more challenging to get into a house, especially for like first-time home buyers, partly because the interest rates are so high, but also because this area is pretty overpriced right now, and there's been no real adjustment to that it's kind of just stayed pretty steady so is that is that six percent like a deal breaker or should people be okay getting into it and maybe it'll come down pretty soon i think it's a deal breaker for a lot of people just pushes people out of even having an opportunity to own something or if they do want to and can qualify for something it's something much less than what they actually want most people a couple years ago were getting in at three percent interest rates and I know people that are under 3% interest rates. And so your payments almost double nowadays than it was back then. And so it's hard. Um, inventory is the other problems because people are holding on to those interest rates. They don't want to sell their house and go, you know, secure a 7% interest rate on something. So there's not a lot available for homes that are on the market. And that's kind of the other problem for new buyers. So is it a bad idea to sell your home right now? Um, I think it all depends on your resources and kind of what you can do and what you're comfortable with. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, letting those interest rates like prevent you from doing it if you can afford it and you can meet all the qualifications to get into a house that you want, even if it's at a 6% rate. Mm -hmm. I think it's still a good idea to do it. Um, because those rates will come down and you can refinance later. And so it's all, all kind of like, how, what kind of resources do you have available to make that happen? And a lot of people just, they just don't have that right now. You know, it's pretty, pretty hard to take on those big payments. So is, um, is renting a, a waste of time, uh, something that you should try to get out of as soon as possible, or is it a good thing to do to save money? But some of the rents are as high as some of the mortgages. Yeah, it's kind of the problem is that, yeah, the some of the rents are more than mortgages in some cases near to, like a two-bedroom place, which is just not, you know, if you're going to be paying a $2,000 a month mortgage or rent, you might as well put it towards a house. So in my opinion, it's like find something that's comfortable in a safe area. It's all, as everyone says, it's like locations, the number one thing, which it is. So if you find something in a decent area and maybe it's a little smaller than what you want, but you know, you have to think long-term, like what can I do with this property after I get it? And if you can be in it and build equity, that's good. And then if you can rent it out later, that's a really good strategy to start building like a nice portfolio of real estate and um, turn it into rental income a couple of years later that can help you get into something bigger and better down the road. So is it a good strategy to rent something terrible? I'd say most likely not, not the best strategy to rent something terrible because there's Terrible things come with terrible rentals, like your car getting broken into and rodent problems and 
people problems with some of these areas that you have to rent in are not great. Um, so kind of be careful about what you're doing and where you're doing it at. Okay, so it's not a good strategy to get the cheapest place possible. You still have to be reasonable about it. Totally. So if you need to buy or sell a home, give you a call. Give me a call. Um, look me up online. My number's all over the place. You can find me. I have a Facebook page. I have a LinkedIn page, all with my name, usually at the end of all those titles. And... Summit Northwest Properties. Some Properties Northwest is the company that I'm with right now, and um, we can definitely take care of you. So it's all good. Yeah, and if you want to start a band, give you a call. Yeah, you can also find me online for that, or just go to amberpacific.com and start looking around there, and you'll find ways to contact us through that as well. Can I find your band on iTunes? Totally. On Apple Music, Amazon, Spotify. It's all Amber Pacific for the name and we'll pop up on all those things and should have most of our stuff available. Okay. And what if I want to ship a package? Can you fly it? Can you fly it for me? I could totally fly a package for you anywhere in the world, <laughs> but it'll probably go through Memphis first. Okay. And that's because you're flying for, for who now? That's my main job. I'm a, a first officer for FedEx Express. You got a lot of things going on. Yeah, I call it like a lot of different hats. Sometimes like all three of those hats, like real estate, music, and flying is all happening at the same time. But luckily, those three things allow for all of them to work at the same time. You know, I can I can do real estate deals from Dubai while I'm working for FedEx and also be writing music while I'm in my hotel room waiting for my next flight. So I'm constantly juggling those three things and it just makes it really easy because everything's done pretty much electronically these days. Like I can, I can send contracts and get signatures online and I can also send music files to different people in the band to try to get some ideas going there and you can collaborate on all that stuff electronically. And then I might have to take like a 10 hour break to fly, you know, from Dubai to Paris or something. But then when I land, I can get back to the real estate and the band. And so that's pretty much what I do while I'm out traveling. Did you, set out specifically to fly cargo? I would say not initially. I think when I started training for uh, flight school and all that, you know, the goal was to actually be a passenger carrier pilot, um, probably with like Alaska Airlines to follow in the footsteps of our dad. How do you get started in flying? Because you have a band, you finished school, you were doing real estate, and then... You just decided to fly? Yeah, so you start, um, once you get the idea, like everyone says the best idea, the best thing you can do when you get the idea to maybe start a career in aviation or even to just like get like a recreational pilot's license is to go up on like a intro flight. Is that what you did? Yeah, well, the flight school that I went through, basically like their first flight is an intro flight, which is good. Um, but you want to like, just find your local FBO, they're called, which is just local airports with these offices that you can go and rent planes out of and um, go on an intro flight because you might not like it. You might not like uh, being in small airplanes or maybe it's just not as interesting as you thought because um, it's different flying in the back of like a 737 versus like a Cessna 172. So go on an intro flight. And if you like the intro flight, then the next thing you have to do is make sure that you're healthy enough to be a pilot and so all pilots have to have what they call a medical a first class medical for commercial pilots um, flying passengers around or cargo pilots like myself so you have to go to a aviation medical examiner an ame and if you're less than 40 years old you have to do this once a year if you're more than 40 years old you have to do it twice a year to keep flying and getting paid to fly um so they say to go find a medical examiner in aviation who can basically check you out and make sure that you have, you know, corrective vision to 2020 and uh, you're not colorblind. There's all sorts of things that come into play that could prevent you from possibly even getting started. And so before you make the investment for these schools to start learning how to fly, you have to go make sure that you can actually do it long term without any health effects impacting your future or career. 
So you don't have to have perfect vision uncorrected then to get into flying. Uh, right. Yeah. So like for me, like on my, on my medical license, it says, you know, must wear corrective lenses. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's like, they consider that like a limitation, but that's totally normal. It's not like the air force where I think you have to have like 20, 20 vision without any help, you know, like that's what it used to be like is, um, really strict uh, health requirements now in the passenger world in the cargo world like for commercial aviation it's not you know there's there's special issuance uh, medical certificates you can get that can work around some some things that people run into um so it's not like a, a life sentence of you're never going to be able to fly if something comes up but it just kind of makes the path to get started a little bit trickier if you have things that come up in your health history and that's okay people have that all the time so if you don't have perfect vision that's not a disqualifier you can still pursue a career in flying yeah yeah absolutely okay so you go out and then i'm a, um is it safe to assume somebody goes with you yeah you'll have a flight instructor um who will be able to help you out when you're going out on that like intro flight they'll maybe let you take the controls once they take off and um they probably won't let you land it or anything like that but um let you get a feel for it and then if you like it you can like jump into uh maybe like a program that that flight school offers or there's also like more nationally known um schools out there that have like specific fast track programs and they have partnerships with uh, regional carriers and ultimately like the bigger legacy carriers they call them like delta united american um to get your career started that way so so you went to the school how long does the school take? Um, so the program that I was in was uh, a fast track program through ATP flight school that got you zero hours to your multi-engine instructor certificate. So everything in between that um, in about seven to nine months was what they were advertising. For me, I started in the wintertime in Washington, which is not good for a new pilot because the weather doesn't cooperate with you very well. So took me a little bit longer, but I was still able to get everything, all my certificates and ratings by September of the following year. So it was pretty quick. And then what do you do from there? You get your certificate and then what do you do? Yeah. So you get your instructor, get your instructor ratings. And then, um, the requirement is you have to have 1500 hours of flight time before you can start flying for a regional carrier or a legacy carrier. That's just the FAA rule that came into play. Um, based off of some past accidents. And so uh, most people will, usually most people just become flight instructors and they build their time teaching every day, you know, for five to six hours a day until they hit that 1500 hour mark. And then they can apply to um, like a regional carrier like SkyWest or Horizon Airlines, which is where um, I ended up. Um, the workaround for that, if you don't want to instruct the whole time, is you can find... Uh, part 135 operations, which don't require you to have 1,500 hours. Um, so their their overall requirements are a little bit lower, but usually that's like single pilot cargo stuff. Or for in my case, it was flying like a nine-seat Beach 1900 for Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. And um, that was like a regional carrier out of Denver that I got to be with when I started. But they hired me with like 300 hours, so I was able to build my time a lot faster because it was a passenger carrier service. So if you're not hired by a airline, you could get hours by instructing that counts. Yeah, usually you're you're instructing till you hit 1500 and that will usually take you about a year or two uh, depending on your location. So a lot of people will go to Florida and a lot of people will go to Arizona because those have great weather and lots of students and you can get your time probably the quickest either of those locations. What if you get a terrible student? Um I mean you just have to figure out a way to to get them to understand um, how to successfully get to, you know, where they're going for their goals. Um, not every student you get is going to be a good one, and it all depends on what their goals are and what they want out of the experience. And some are more disciplined than others, so it just depends. You get a whole bunch of different kinds of students, different ages, different, different all of that, different backgrounds. So how long did you fly for, you went from Great Lakes for how long? Great Lakes was about a year and a half. 
and then on to Horizon. To Horizon, which was about four years, and now entering my third year at FedEx. And then what made you make the switch from Horizon to Cargo? Yeah, so a lot of my friends that I flew with at Great Lakes ended up over at FedEx. And so I always knew that that company was interesting because it's a different kind of operation. Um, You're flying all over the world on a single trip. I can literally fly a lap around the world, which is not unlike, it's not like any other carriers. If you're at, if you're at United or Delta, you might fly to Italy or to Paris or something, but you're going to sit there for 24 hours and come back before you go anywhere else. Whereas for us, you know, we'll leave Memphis and go to Japan then we'll go to like South Korea, we'll go to Singapore, we'll go to Dubai, to Paris, and then back to Memphis. So we just keep going all the way around. So that's kind of the difference. Um, and the nice thing is that I might be gone for, you know, 10 days a month on a trip, but then I'm done working. That's it for the flying side of it. So you get a lot. of. But you can work more if you want. Um, yeah, depending on like the time of the year and the volume that we're getting. So right now, like in the cargo world, the shipping volumes are down a little bit so there's not a lot of extra flying that's being done right now um but that varies you know once we start getting closer to what they call peak which is um into the winter like you know holiday season um things obviously pick up and shipping picks up and so there will be more available to fly if you want to i told you to mention um during your interviews about how much you like the movie castaway did you do that (laughs) Castaway is talked about a lot at FedEx. Um, that was a big opportunity for the company to get their name out there. And even uh, in an, a recent interview with the former CEO, Fred Smith, who started the whole company, he he was uh, talking about that opportunity to get FedEx and how he thought it'd be a good idea to get the brand out there. But then some people in the company thought maybe it wasn't such a good idea because of what happened to the plane and FedEx in Castaway the plane going down it's not the best look for the company from a pr standpoint but it ended up working out good so they got great exposure from it yeah no press no press is bad press right do you think the movie would have been different if it was a ups plane no i think the same result would probably happen just to make sure that tom hanks ended up on an island by himself but i think the color scheme of the fedex added to the movie i think the color scheme's a little bit better than the brown and yellow personally but do you guys have a rivalry between the pilots? No, actually not really. The UPS guys are super nice to us. Um, we see them all the time and because we all fly to the same parts of the world. So we always see them waiting in the lobby for their um, you know, hotel, their shuttle to pick them up and we're waiting to get picked up. And so it's all cordial and friendly. There's no like rivalry or anything like that. There's no competition? No, 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 not really. Hmm. But the colors are better at FedEx than UPS. I think the color is a little bit better and um, looks like FedEx is going to be updating their uniforms in the very near future to have uh, like incorporating the purple into more of their stuff a little bit. So it should be pretty cool. Is that going to be for you guys match? The drivers are different than the pilots, right? There's all sorts of different branches of FedEx. There's FedEx Express, which is the aviation part of it. Then there's FedEx Ground. There's FedEx Logistics. There's um, FedEx Office. Like their their current initiative is called Drive, and they're trying to condense all that into one brand, just FedEx. So those things are actually all called different things: FedEx Express and FedEx Ground. Those are all different different things in FedEx. Yeah, different branches under the FedEx umbrella, but they're run by you know like FedEx Ground has their own CEO, whereas FedEx Express is run by a different CEO. So well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We got real estate banned and flying. Do you have any other plans? You're gonna are you gonna open an In and Out Burger in Washington? I would love to open an In and Out Burger. I'm looking at vesting and storage storage units just because I like the way that they look. I think they're always really clean looking, and we have a lot of stuff that we could store. So it'd be cool to just own one and not have to pay someone else. Um, and I hear that pet grooming. Pet grooming locations are actually very profitable too. So entertaining all of those options. Like a pet grooming business? Yeah. 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 Like boarding and pet grooming. Yeah. Are you going to run that yourself? 
No, I think I would hire someone to run that. But we have a couple of my pilot friends who are getting into things outside of flying, and it's pretty interesting. One of them in particular lives in Idaho, and he is starting his own child care center and just launched it and getting ready to open another one because it's doing so well. So lots of different things that pilots are always thinking about doing outside of flying. Flying usually kind of becomes a secondary thing for a lot of the guys that that I fly with, they usually have something else that they're doing that's a little more interesting. So you got to do something productive with your free time. Yeah, because you have, you know, you're getting like 20 days off a month. Um, so you have to do something with that time. You can't just go out and just fly all the time. Do people have their own planes? Yeah, a lot of people have their own planes. So they will go out and fly. After they fly for FedEx, they'll go home and they'll fly their own plane somewhere just for fun. But um, we have a lot of those, actually. Well, what do you do if you have your own plane? What is the point? You go up fly around come back i think it depends on your situation some people like flying like old um they're called old like warbirds so planes from like world war ii um they'll be restored some people just like to work on airplanes so they'll restore these old airplanes and fly them around and they'll get asked to be parts of air shows and things like that so i've heard the some of our guys doing that um a lot of our guys have their own airplanes because they're children want to get into aviation so it's a good way to introduce them to it and if you're a flight instructor you can teach your own kid how to fly in your own airplane then you don't have to go to a flight school and you don't have to go that road you can just fly with your mom or dad and uh, build your time that way in your own airplane which i know a couple people have done that that'll probably save you how much money boy i don't know because flight school flight school just went up in price isn't isn't that what you're saying that's what i was saying flight school is is pretty expensive now like a big national brand like atp flight school is uh pretty close to a hundred thousand dollars for their multi-engine program now um which is a big investment but you get that the return on that investment comes back to you pretty quickly especially with the hiring environment um there's a lot of people that are projecting major retirements at all these places and so they're estimating a big pilot shortage to come up and um as a way to offset that a lot of the regionals are offering you know these giant signing bonuses just to just to fly for them which is kind of unprecedented and pretty cool and so you can make back a lot of that investment pretty quickly well so that's like an inside pro tip that these people are going to have vacancies coming up so if you were thinking about being a pilot yeah, don't, let your, a, don't let your dream die today. Now is a great time to start getting into that world because there will be opportunity um, for the next couple of years with lots of retirements coming up. And like I said, you know, some places are offering over $100,000 just to start flying with them, which is paid usually on day one of being there. And that's pretty cool. So your flight school becomes free. Yeah, you basically pay it off after, you know, two years of your initial investment. And then from then on, it's all just profit and and it just exponentially grows with every year that you're in aviation. Usually you're moving up on the pay scale by pretty significant raises every year. Well, that's pretty good information um, if you wanted to get into flying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the takeaway is listen to Amber Pacific, don't buy a house. And definitely start flying. Is that fair? That's um, yeah. Or that's do a pretty do good buy a house. You definitely definitely entertain the option of buying a house because you don't want to just pay someone else. You'd rather be building equity. So if you can find something that isn't perfect but something that's manageable, I would do that. Okay, so maybe so buy listen a to house. Amber Pacific. Maybe buy a house and get into flight training. Okay, that's great information. If you had to pick only one of those three jobs which one job would you pick or a fourth job you could be a police officer being a police officer i think would be a very challenging career don't pick that one yes it's very very rare when the news highlights good things that police officers do it's mostly just bad things yeah nobody likes nobody likes the police okay back to the three then (laughs) yeah back to the three i don't know uh, realistically speaking, obviously the aviation career is going to probably be one of your best options. But they do say, going back to talking about your health, um, your aviation career can get taken away from you pretty quickly, really, with any number of 
random things that can happen to you throughout the day. Um, so it's always good to have a backup. So because of that, I would say start a band and go toward the worlds and do that. That'd be pretty cool. Okay. So your number one recommendation then is to start a band and go on tour. Yes. So everybody should be doing that. Yes. All right. Great information. Yeah. You you didn't want to get into uh, flying uh, fighter jets or anything like that while you were growing up? I don't know if you remember when we were really little, though, we went to a full motion simulator Yeah. in, in the Navy with, with dad. And um, I totally took you down on that. Do you remember that? That's one of the reasons why I didn't want to fly because I kept on crashing the uh, simulator every time yeah. and I, I didn't understand why, but I guess it was stalling out. Yeah, it's probably true. Um, but yeah, that, that actually did make me want to be like in the Navy flying fighter jets, but then it just didn't work out that way. I ended up touring in a band instead. And then my time to be in the Navy kind of ran out because there's an age limit on that. Right. So the age limit, is there an age limit on um, getting into flying? Um, there's an age limit on how long you can fly. So at age 65 right now, it's a mandatory retirement age for commercial aviation. So if you're at a legacy carrier or a cargo company like FedEx or UPS, can't fly beyond age 65. So but does that make it so that you, there is there an age where you wouldn't want to, if you pass a certain age, you wouldn't want to even bother investing in learning that stuff? I think once upon a time that might have been true, but because of the shortage, there's still a lot of opportunity to um, make quite a bit of money. Even if you're in your 50s and you get started a little bit later, you could still, um, and I've actually instructed some of these people at Horizon too, who started later on 45, 50 years old, had full on careers, actually flew with a couple of retired police officers. Um, hmm. So it's a second job for a lot of people and you can get started. And if you have, you know, five or 10 years at a company, you can earn quite a bit of money doing that. And it's a lot of fun and you get some pretty great benefits with it too, which is good for your family. Nice. All right. Well, I think we learned a lot today um, about you kind of a, like a James Bond of, of things <laughs> yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, some of these things I did want to find out more about. So thanks for sharing. Yes. Uh, I will talk to you again sometime. I'll have to have you back on. And uh, if some people have some questions about specific stuff, you do have a lot of information uh, with you that you, it's nice that you're willing to share. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. Great All experience. right. Well, I'll talk to you sometime soon, not on the podcast, but um, in real life. And then okay. uh, if not, then we'll, we'll see you back on the podcast, uh, hopefully pretty soon. Awesome. Sweet. Okay. Take care. Be safe okay. out there. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.